Hello and welcome to this week's The Proteomics Show. This is season two of a special limited series called The Faces of US Hupo, sponsored again by US Hupo. Hi, I'm Ben Osborne, and I'm here with uh, Dr. Benjamin Neely. And uh, this, this episode featured uh, Dr. John Yates of uh, Scripps and JPR and US Hupo and a bunch of other things. Right. Yeah, we had a really long discussion, which obviously was on the birth of MS-based proteomics, kind of through the lens of John. Uh, it was fun. It was a fortuitous meandering path from broken leg to birth of a field. Um, so yeah, enjoy. Hello, everyone. Uh, welcome back to the podcast. So we're here today with uh, John Yates. John, thank you for coming uh, to talk with us today. My pleasure. Awesome. So we're going to kind of hop right into this and maybe a little different is, and this may be a little too broad, I guess, John, can you start off like partly, what are you scientifically known for, but then can you talk about more about not what you want to be known for, but what is this vision of your future that you're actively working towards? We're just hopping into it hard. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, that, that's good. Good question. Um, so I, my my the reason i i do what i do is i've always loved this idea of uh protein sequencing and uh i, I had my bachelor's degree was in zoology and i uh when i took organic chemistry i loved it and then i discovered mass spectrometers and and a guy who was trying to sequence with uh with mass spectrometers and that just kind of fused two areas that i was really uh, uh enamored with and so it, it's just, you know, the, there was this book out maybe 30 years ago called Everything I Needed to Know About Life I Learned in Kindergarten, something like that. It's like everything I'm ever going to do in my life, I did already did in grad school. I'm just going to keep doing it. So I, I feel like I feel like that's what I've been doing is uh, my, my title of my dissertation was protein sequencing by tandem mass spectrometry. And I don't feel like I've really deviated too much from that. But that, that's been what I've been doing. And where I'm going is... Uh, I don't know. I'm starting to think. I've hit. I've hit the age where I'm starting to think about retirement, hmm. and uh, so you know, Rudy Ibersold retired, and, and Rudy and I used to have offices next to each other in, in Seattle, and so that was kind of a big wake up call. And so I've been thinking about what's my plan, but the problem is I just keep submitting proposals. And so, you know, in, in academia, you've got to have this like five-year, three-year, five-year run out to finish up proposals and get people out and stuff. And so I'm trying to keep that in mind as I'm thinking about, okay, what am I going to do for the next 10 years? Yeah, that's, did, that's a lot. Did, did Rudy really retire though? Because it seems like he's speaking all over the place and... Um, <laughs> so he he is now professor emeritus at the ETH. So he no longer has a, an operating lab there. He's probably right. still got an office, um, and he probably still has work he can continue to talk about. That that won't be uh, you know talking about things he did ten years ago. Um, and he's I think he's he's actually working for some foundation doing something. So he's keeping busy and he's coming to the U.S. frequently because he's all his kids are here. Okay. I wonder because it seems like, yeah. Um, his kids, his kids grew up in the U.S. and, and so they, they, they didn't go back to Switzerland. No. So where, where did you get your, what's your, your bachelor's? The zoology? Or University of Maine in zoology, yeah. 
wow. which uh, I guess was animal biology. So I, I think used to be some programs would separate um, animal biology from plant biology. And so you would have a botany program and you had a zoology program. And now I think they're all kind of like under this biology rubric or something. So, so wait, I'm going to get this wrong. Um, you have a zoology bachelor's. Does it, um, Ron Beavis? I'm pretty sure he said that he also has a zoology background. Could be. That's, that's kind of wild. I mean, I, I had this theory that a lot of us are secretly microbiologists. I know Ben and I, uh, and I think maybe you have some micro background, but I had, hadn't thought about zoology as being like a, a, con a constant thread. Um, yeah, every once in a great while I get this. So is that the study of zoos? Yeah, <laughs> you're really good at studying zoos. That's why you live in San Diego, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, but but so so, uh, I mean, I get. But as you're moving forward, I mean, you you have this other side beyond the protein sequencing, and and I I, we're, I hope we come back to the zoology, and now that's influenced some of your earlier work. Um, but you also do, for instance, like what's this doping thing? The anti-doping organization. I, I know I see you like post some stuff about it, but what is your technical involvement there? If I can ask. Yeah. yeah. So you can. And uh, it's, uh, I guess as you get older and more mature as a scientist, people start asking to do kind of other things. And um, probably about 15 years ago, no, probably long more than that, almost 20 years ago, I guess, uh, I got asked to talk at a, a, a world anti-doping agency workshop on gene doping. And so, you know, with the, 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 these methods like RNAi and CRISPR-Cas9 and uh, all these methods that are coming around that would allow people to manipulate their genomes, the question in the community, the doping community, anti-doping community is uh, how are we going to figure that out? People are modifying their genomes in some way. And, and I mean, there was, a, there was this classic case that Ron Evans at Salk modified this mouse, um, which became the marathon mouse. You could put it on a treadmill and it would run forever. And um, this modified one gene to, to do that. And so people are, people are, athletes will do anything to win. It, it's, a, it's, a, it's an incredible what I've learned over the last 20 years uh, about the motivations of athletes to, to really put themselves in harm, harm's way because they're not necessarily getting top medical advice on how to, how to, how to do these things. Um, so, I went to that workshop. It was in Stockholm. It was in December. The weather was terrible, but it was during uh, right at the start of Nobel Week, so it was kind of kind of cool. And then, um, I, during that course of that workshop, I met uh, Larry Bowers, who was uh, the chief scientific officer at the U.S. Anti-Doping Agency. So each country that wants to participate in the Olympics is supposed to have an organization that um, um, deals with testing their athletes and things like that. And so I, I met Larry and and. Uh, Larry asked me to talk at um, um, a USADA conference. They have a USADA conference about mass spec and um, protein analysis. And then um, he, he also told me that, well, I'm working on this thing and, and would you be interested? And, you know, one of the conditions is that you can't apply for grants. And um, turns out that the you know, most foundation type organizations only, only, only pay 25% overhead. And so it was like, well, that's fine. Scripps requires full overhead. So I could never apply for a grant anyway. So, so I've been on this board for 15 years. The, the Partnership for Clean Competition is funded by the NFL. It's funded by Major League Baseball, uh, the PGA, 
I think NHL, NHL, and a, a few other sports I'm trying to get you know more professional sports organizations involved in this. Um, and and they they put put in money and we we uh, fund grants and things like that. The other organization that funds these kind of grants is uh, is WADA, World Anti Doping Agency. Um, and it's been it's been interesting to to learn all these things and and it's a a board that's uh, made up mostly of retired scientists now. I, th I think over the fifty, it's the same board over fifty years. Some people have retired and left, but um, but it's mostly uh, people over fifteen years. So we've all kind of aged. And I was like the youngest person on the board at one time. <clears throat> so that's how I got involved. Got it. And it's uh, it's been interesting. It get it had has some perks every now and then. I, I got tickets to a Super Bowl one year. Um, wow, that's yeah. a perk. <laughs> but, this my one and only professional football game that I went to, but it was really, it was super cool. <laughs> but, but you're not operating like a doping lab or I, I guess I that's kind of, okay. But, but no, you're no. up, you're up and kind of advising, um, helping drive these organizations. Got it. Okay. Yeah. And, and, and they're, they're, they're trying to keep abreast of, um, you know, what technical advances are, are going on. Uh, like for example, at the upcoming USADA conference. So every, Every four years when the Olympics are coming, they hold the USADA conference in the hosting city and we go visit the testing labs and things like that. And, and one of the themes that we're going to talk about this year is, uh, is uh, blood analysis. You know, what are the proteomic methods? What are the metabolomic methods that are coming along that might, you know, have an impact in, in being able to, to test people for various things? Like, like one of, the, one of the, the really interesting problems that we've not been able to solve yet is uh, we, we can detect the EPO doping. And EPO is a great one because it really increased for, uh, for cardiovascular um, um, types of events where you really need uh, good oxygenation. EPO is a great uh, doping agent. <clears throat> um, but it's easily, we can detect it very well now. So the, what they do is they do autologous blood doping where they'll take out a, a, a pint of blood and then they'll put it back in. And so they increase the volume of red blood cells. And we don't have good ways to detect that. Um, you would, you would think you could look for plasticizers because they're taking the blood out and put them into a plastic bag. And then when they put it back in there, should they're, they should have a higher level of plasticizers in their blood. But when people test for plasticizers in blood be, without doing that, we have tons of plasticizers in our blood. Mm. So, so yeah, it's been, it's been interesting. It's more, it's more about analytical chemistry and testing for biological molecules and than it would be about, um, uh, other things. Cool. So, so you're going to Paris, right? I'm going to Paris. Nice. <laughs> well, okay, cool. Like, yeah, I've, I've always, I've wondered that. Um, how, how concerned are you guys about the, the genetic modifications at this point? You know, I, I know, um, you know, this kind of famous thing where the, where the biohacker, um, uh, tried to alter himself with a CRISPR injection. Um, oh, the melatonin um, guy. Uh, or a different one. Yeah, no, there's, there's it's a there's a Netflix documentary and uh, yeah, where he yeah injects himself with a CRISPR Cas9 thing to try to mighty mouse himself. <laughs> I, yeah, is that something order? Is it is it is it something we're concerned about now? So so we're concerned about it from the standpoint of trying to stay ahead. Yeah, and and, and if we if people think we have tools to detect it, that would decrease the motivation to to do it. Right. And, and we really don't. The, I mean, the ultimate goal here is, is to prevent athletes from doing harm to themselves. 
Sure. And, and a lot of this, this doping movement started from the, uh, what was it, the seventies when the, uh, Eastern Germ East Germany athletes were, the female athletes were given to, uh, steroids, testosterone without their knowledge. And, um, I mean, ruined a bunch of lives as a result of that. And so that, that, that's the, the goal is to prevent athletes from doing harm themselves intentionally or unintentionally. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> I, I'm a big cycling fan and yeah, you know, you're I was waiting for you to be like Richard Bronk or something, but, um, yeah, it's, it's obviously like a constant topic in cycling. Um, it seems to be better now instead of talking about EPO, they're talking about like, uh, people taking like asthma medicine, it seems like, but, um, it's still, it's an arms race and, and, yes. and, and I think in the last five years in cycling, at least five or 10, it's become more of this, uh, high tech. Uh, you know, over, you know, all of the stuff that we talk about with monitoring and, and specific diets and, and training is happening. And so if you have all this tech going on, you obviously, people are probably thinking about things that will be called doping or are doping. So, yeah. Yeah. The, the other thing that, that's really important too, is uh, all these supplements that are out there yeah. and uh, athletes need to know what's actually in them. <laughs> And the people that sell them don't know what's actually in them because they need to know if there are um, banned substances in these things and they're they're taking uh, something that they think is going to, you know, I don't know, help increase muscle mass or something like that. And then it actually has, you know, like testosterone in it. They they would need right. to know that, know that because they shouldn't be taking it. Yeah. And, and I have wondered how often, you know, that, that where an athlete claims that they were only taking over the counter things, but what, and, and there's something banned in it, that there really was something banned in it because, you know, the, the Walgreens study was really depressing. Like that they, when they go through their supplements, it's like, like what, 20% of their, their products did contain some level of the active ingredient. Right. And that was the, that was the most optimistic thing they could say about it. It's just a, it, yeah, no, that's crazy. And there were some mysterious cases of, of things, banned substances showing up in athletes and the athletes are swearing up and down that they've never taken them and they don't know how it got in them and all these things. And, 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 and then there are some great scientists in this field, like Mario Thevis over in, uh, over Cologne, who will, will start trying to do some investigations to try to figure out, you know, how this athlete could have become contaminated by this. And, 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 you know, weird things show up like, uh, uh, somebody eats a lot of eggs and, and is, is it lives in Africa and the eggs, are being treated with some compound um, that gets into the eggs and, and it's a banned substance. And because it's eating so many eggs, they, they build right. up a level of it. Wow. Well, I, I didn't actually play. I thought we were <laughs> yeah. going to talk about proteomics, but you know, uh, that he does proteomics though too. You do proteomics, right? <laughs> so, so, I mean, the part of the reason why I, I'm involved in that is that they thought the proteomics might in particular help with uh, trying to detect, um, gene doping, mm -hmm. you know, changes in people's bloods, blood proteins and things. Yeah. Well, I, th I mean, I think it's great. Uh, okay. We're going to come back to probably what you're like more of the, the current proteomics, but, but can we take like a step back in this part of the show, which is talking about how you got to where you are. So you already said, you know, you, you were interested in protein sequencing and zoology. This would have been kind of undergrad, but can you kind of walk us through, you can go back as far as you want. You can be like, I was a six-year-old watching a bird and I wondered why it sang a certain way and another one did it, up to kind of how you got to where you are. Um, however much detail you want. So your or <laughs> the John Yates origin story. 
Yeah. You don't need to go back to six-year-old John. Yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> Probably not that interesting anyway. So, so I think I got, I got interested in science, um, freak, kind of freak of an, an accident in that I um, was playing freshman football. First game, pretty, pretty much one of the first plays of the game, I think. Um, and I go and I make a tackle and somebody lands on my leg and breaks my leg. And so off I go to the hospital and I won't name the hospital, but uh, two clearly very tired residents come in and try to set my leg and they set it and it's my foot's crooked. So if you hold the leg straight like that, the, the foot is, is, is crooked. So as my dad was in the military, I went to a different hospital for the follow-up and the doctor looked at it and he said, your foot, and he was a German born doctor. Uh, and so your foot is crooked. <laughs> so we have to fix that. So he, uh, so I had surgery and I was in the hospital for like a week or something like that. And so, and you know, watching all the stuff going on, I got kind of interested in medicine and, and science and so forth. And so, uh, I went off to college and, uh, and, and then, so the other big, big thing was, uh, taking, taking chemistry as a, uh, sophomore, well, well we already take that sophomore year or junior year. So in, in high school yeah, yeah. and the, the chemistry teacher made nylon and that, that just blew me away that, oh, man, you mix these chemicals because you can make stuff. That was just so cool. So when I went to college, the idea was that I would, um, I was pre-med and I was going to, I was going to go to medical school and all that. And I didn't do well enough to actually get into medical school, at least the first time. It was mostly, mostly board scores, I guess. Um, so I thought I would, so I really liked, I, I took organic chemistry and I, I killed it. I had like a 98 average, you know, over both semesters. And so I thought, well, I'll, I'll go to grad school in chemistry for a year and then reapply. And then I went to, went to, um, started going to grad school. So working on master's degree and that the university of Maine had just hired a new, um, assistant professor from Klaus Beeman's laboratory and they bought him a, a GCMS, shows you how old this is. They bought him a GCMS and he was going to do, uh, peptide sequencing by, by mass spec. And so uh, I joined his group because I thought that was super cool. And he was young and, you know, energetic and enthusiastic. And, and, but this was a really cool, cool science because it allowed me to merge my, my two interests together. But I, I didn't think I was going to be there that long anyway. And then uh, as, as time went on, I, I, I really liked the chemistry, you know, taking organic qualitative analysis and, and instrumental analysis classes, advanced instrumental analysis classes and things like that. And, and then started doing the research and I just got sucked in and I never reapplied to medical school and, and kind of lost interest. And in, you know, in hindsight, I thought that, I don't know, fate just kind of works things, works things through, I guess, because I probably would have been a terrible doctor because like not an empathetic with people complaining about things. Fate probably sent me down the, down, down the appropriate career path anyway. Uh, and, you know, I love thinking about problems, but 
you know, not necessarily patient problems. <laughs> well, or at least problems where I have to actually deal with patients. Um, so, so it's been, I, I think, you know, fate kind of set me down the right track. And, and then I decided, I, I decided I really liked what I was doing with GCMS, but this was, uh, so 1981, um, I'm in grad school, fast out but Marmot comes along and all of a sudden the, the, the beam in chemistry we were doing to sequence peptides by GCMS is going to go away. And, um, I realized, uh, if I want to continue with this, it probably wouldn't be a good idea to do a PhD at Maine because they're probably not going to get a, um, an instrument that's capable of, of running fab anytime soon. And Don Hunt had just had this paper on tandem mass spectrometry, sequencing peptides, and he'd shown this one tetramer met, met Fiala. And I thought, no, that's the future. Cause he, he did fab and then tandem mass spectrometry said, that's it. And so I wrote to Don and we were taking, I was taking a mass spec class, you know, as a grad student and, and one of the th assignments we had to do was to uh, profile somebody's lab. And I picked Don's lab and I actually wrote to him and asked him, you know, well, what are you doing now in your lab kind of thing? And uh, he wrote back <laughs> and, you know, Don, Don writes and he uses a fountain pen. And so he wrote, he's, really? his penmanship's not all that great, but you know, he, he wrote back, wrote back a long letter, tell me what was going on and all this stuff. And, that, and it's like, I was sold. So. I went there for, for grad school and, uh, the tandem mass spectrometer they had in that lab was home built, built by Jeff Shabanowitz. And they basically took three single quads and stuck them together. And, uh, what they had just done before I arrived is that they extended the mass range on their triple quad to 1800 Dalton's. And so all the other ones were, were capped at about a thousand. And, uh, so that was a big plus because now we had fast on bombardment on it. Then we could see things up to, up to about 1800 Daltons. Red and tetradecapeptide was, uh, 1759, I think stuff like that. That was one of the peptides that we would use to, uh, to calibrate and to tune on. And it was right up at the limit of the, of the mass range on the triple quad. So that got me interested in, uh, peptide sequencing and spent four happy years trying to sequence peptides. And it was, became clear to me. So one of the other things that, that, that wound up being pretty fundamental for my career was, um, when I was in college, I heard all my friends were taking, they had to take a computer programming course and they were taking like cobalt or something. And I think they were using cards back then. And, punch cards and they complained and complained about programming. The programming class was too hard and all this stuff. And so I was always kind of fearful of, of programming. And then I got to a point, I was, uh, so first year in grad, grad school, in the master's program, I thought, well, you know, I really probably should learn how to program. And so by then they'd switched over to Pascal, which was supposed to be this teaching language. And I took the class and absolutely loved it. I said, this stuff is great. It's kind of like uh, synthetic chemistry, right? Where you can, where you mix a couple of chemicals together, you can, you can make something and with programming, you could, you know, write a bunch of code and you can make it do things. So it was, I thought it was super cool. And uh, 
So when I, when I went to, was moving to Virginia, I was trying to get a, a graduate student loan for $5,000 to uh, buy a computer. And I wanted to buy an, so for $5,000, I could buy an IBM PC. And fortunately, fortunately they turned me down uh, be, because I would have been stuck with this dinosaur of a overpriced computer um, then pay back this $5,000 student loan. So, but within, a, you know, like within 18 months, 24 months, the computers were down to like $1,500. So I, I eventually I bought a PC. So I get continued to program and I had it in the lab on my desk and spent uh, my spare time programming. It, what just, just what's the date ish range here that you're talking about? Like, uh, right. I was at, yeah. So it was a master's program in Maine from 81 to 83. Yeah. And then I was at Virginia 83 to, uh, 87. So, so this is, you've got the computer in the mid to late eighties. So th- got it. Like, uh, probably 1985, I bought that computer because I had to get my wife, I was newly married. I had to get my wife to agree <laughs> to spend, you know, $1,500 on a computer. And it was an AT&T PC 6300, two floppy drives. The big old floppies, the big five and a Yeah, yeah, five and five and a quarters. Yeah. Cool. Uh, so, okay, so, okay, so we've got, you've learned Pascal, you've got a giant, not a giant computer, but you've got like mid 80, mid to mid eighties computer and how, I mean, yeah, what's, what's the next step? I mean, I know like where it's going, but I don't know what happens in the middle. So, I mean, I spent, we were trying to sequence peptides and, and by sequence peptides, I mean, we're collecting tandem mass spectra of peptides and sitting down and interpreting them. And so what one goal of mine was to try to automate that. Um, the, but the, the problem was uh, the, uh, the computer on the mass spectrometer was a DEC PDP 10 or 11 or something like that. And it had, it had the giant disc, you know, the, the uh, 12 inch hard hard disk and you had to pull it out, put it into the drive. And, and so we all, we each had our uh, one, one disk and there was like 10 megabytes of data of storage on there or something. And, um, and then when it filled up, we either had to clean it off or, or get a new one, you know, get somebody to buy a new one for you. But, and, and it, it was, there was no, it wasn't attached to the internet. And so getting data off of that computer and into my computer was uh, was problematic, and I I did was talking to the Finnegan, which is the predecessor to Thermo, about how how I might do that, and and they didn't know. <laughs> so so in some cases there was a, there was a way to print out mass to charge ratios and intensity ratios, and and I was doing that and typing trying to type them in, but that that was just too too big a waste of time. And the other, the other thing that would, that wound up being quite instrumental was, uh, uh, the Swiss pro people took all these programs that they had running on mainframes and they put them on, they brought, they, they reprogrammed them and recompiled them and put them on a PC and they created this, this, uh, um, 
package of programs, which was called PC Gene. And it was being sold through a company called uh, Intelligenetics. And Intelligenetics uh, um, claimed the fame at that time was that they had the contract to maintain GeneBank. So this predates NCBI. And if you wanted to access GeneBank, you had to go through something called Telnet. Now, I never actually tried to do that, but, but you had to go through Telnet. And what um, the Swiss Pro guys did is that they took, they, they put all these programs on, and they also created a database. And so you, you get these, this, I don't know, it was like 10 floppies or something like that. And then you could put the program in and, you know, you know you're constantly pulling floppies out of one drive, put in another drive to, to get things to run. But through that process, I learned about all these different kinds of programs to do these different things to manipulate proteins and DNA. And, uh, but it had, but the more, more interesting thing was it had a database in it and it wasn't that many proteins in it, maybe, maybe 65, maybe a hundred, but it, so as I was pulling up sequences, it got me interested in the connection between mass spec data and, and, and sequences and the protein sequences and stuff like that. So I started, <clears throat> started looking at those, um, that time frame, trying to understand what the relationships were. There's so many parts of the story that you just seem so foreign. Like, I, I feel like with mine and Ben's age, like we can kind of see that, but I feel like uh, a kid in undergrad right now is going to hear what you're saying and just think that you're insane, right? Like you couldn't get data off of mass spec. It was on a giant 12 inch disc. Like the whole, there were 60 protein sequences. I mean, the, the whole, the whole idea is just, um, baffling, but, but that's kind of, that was the state, right. Of the, the late eighties. Um, yeah. I mean, there was an internet. Um, I didn't have email back then. I think some, some people did, uh, but you had to go to a, I think, I think there was a terminal within the chemistry department where you could get on the internet and, and, and maybe do something, um, check your email or something. But, uh, but yeah, it wasn't, I mean, if you think about it, so I think it was 1994 when Netscape 0.9 came out. Um, so that to me is kind of a signal to start on the World Wide Web because now you can access things. But before that, we, well, when I first arrived to Washington and we were moving forward on, on software and so forth, we were, we were accessing sequence databases using FTP. To, to download them and things like that, bring them in locally. So you weren't just going on AOL. <laughs> Sorry. No, <laughs> no, I was, I was never on AOL. Those were the days. Um, so, so you went, so, so, uh, you, you mentioned Washington and then, and that, that was kind of a big, I think, well, I don't know what, what, like, what are these kind of clutch moves that happen? Because at some so, point, so you end up after, at scripts, right? Not, yeah, so, not so really. After, after, so, I mean, I mean, there's all, all these fortuitous accidents that, that happen, you know, along the way. So back, back in that time, back in the eighties, the big meeting for protein people was this uh, MPSA, Methods and Protein Sequence Analysis. It's no longer around, but it was an international meeting and if you wanted to hear about the, the, the latest and greatest in protein sequencing, that was the meeting you went to. But it was mostly dominated by, you know, Edmund sequencers and pe people like that. Um, 
but increasingly mass spec was 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 involved in that and Klaus Beeman was there and, and Don Hunt was starting to go. And um, uh, I, I went to one of those meetings when I was in Seattle and it was, you know, awesome. And, um, Don, but before that Seattle meeting, Don had gone, Don had been invited to speak one in Berlin and he went and he gave a, what, a keynote or something like that. And, and uh, Lee Hood was there and Lee Hood was very intrigued with what Don was doing and I invited them out to dinner. So they went out to dinner and um, I think Lee must have said, do you have anybody in your lab that's ready to graduate or something like that? And Don called back to the lab and said, put your CV together and send it to Lee Hood. <laughs> so, and so I talked to Lee and Lee said, yeah, just come on out. Let's do this. And so I go to Caltech and this was, uh, so I spent a year as a postdoc in Don's lab. So it's the, the FTMS was starting to come online, the, the external source, uh, lion source, uh, X, FTMS. So I wanted to see where that was going. And uh, so, and then um, I went out to Caltech, do a postdoc. I also was supposed to go to the, so I'd, I'd been interviewing for, 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 uh, academic positions and all this stuff. I, I went on 19 interviews, I think 19 interviews, 17 interviews, 19 interviews, didn't get a single offer. Um, and then I finally get an offer from the Salk Institute and we're going to order a, um, a sector mass spectrometer. It takes about a year to build back then. And they said, uh, well, I want you to go do a postdoc somewhere. And they said, we'll pay for it. And uh, uh, so I said, well, I'm going to go to Caltech. To Lee Hood's lab. They said, well, we won't pay for that. <laughs> so they, they figured, um, they, they said, if you're any good, uh, Lee Hood will keep you. Uh, and they were right. Uh, so went to Caltech and it was just, it was like eight, 1989 and all this talk about the genome sequencing project. Should we do it? You know, is it worth the money? It's going to be, we're going to get information out and how are we going to do it? And all this stuff. And Lee's lab was, they had just come up with the four color DNA sequencer and all that. And ABI was, was commercialized and Lee had one of the early versions. And, and so Lee's lab was like this mecca of, of the DNA sequencing project, you know, the, the, what, what was, what, what should we do and all this stuff. And so there was this parade of, of famous people coming through, you know, I met Jim Watson. And, and, you know, all these other people that were coming through to discuss the, the genome project, you know, Eric Lander and all, all that when he was on young, just a uh, young scientist. And uh, so it was, so it was super cool to be there because all this discussion going on about the genome project and how are we going to do it? Are we going to do directed sequencing? Are we do shotgun sequencing? Um, how are we going to make libraries? And, you know, all, all this fantastic talk. And, and, the, and Lee's got this protein sequencing group and you know we're like the poor cousins because the whole focus is on is on is on the genome now and he also has an immunology group so lee lee had like at that time lee lee was lab was like the hottest lab in the country he had like 70 people in the lab and he had, he had an immunology group he had a bioinformatics group he had dna sequencing group he had protein sequencing group he had a protein synthesis group you know and all this stuff going on so so it was a super cool place to be and, and a lot of people that, that were there at the same time I went on, they, they all, a lot of them went off to, to, you know, big careers elsewhere in science. So, um, 
So what was what was really kind of interesting for me was I'm trying to think, okay, how is how is protein analysis going to be relevant in this clearly coming future of of genome analysis? And that's where ideas of uh, which uh, harken back to my time in 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 Virginia when I was playing with these databases and I was looking at at protein sequences and how they related to those sequences in the databases of the mass spec data and how it related to protein sequencing data. And so I was thinking about, you know, is there a connection here? And clearly at the time with uh, 60 to 100 sequences in the database, it was uh, not powerful enough to do much with it. And then when I get to you get to uh, Caltech and there's all this discussion going on, it's clear the database is going to grow and it's going to grow rapidly. And so those thoughts started to come back to me about how to, how to make, how to start making those connections. But one of the things I was working on, in addition to doing, um, learning how to do admin degradation, I was um, also at a computer and I was, you know, still programming or trying to write programs and do de novo analysis of, of mass, mass spec data. Um, and the mass spec data was probably not high enough quality back then to, to, to do accurate, um, de novo interpretation, but I was still, still working on it. And, you know, you, you learn, they always learn things when, you, when you're working on hard problems. So let's see. So from there, um, uh, I guess it's probably safe to say this now, but at the time Finnegan didn't want me to say anything. Finnegan gave me a mass spectrometer. Uh, that connection between um, somebody that actually knows how to use it and being in at Caltech and in Hood's lab, they thought would be fantastic marketing. So they can run around saying, oh, look, Lee Hood's got a mass spectrometer in his lab now. And uh, so I had a mass spec there and we started uh, uh, working on, uh, at a little little group, we were starting to work on protein sequencing by mass spec again. There was the uh, TSQ-70. But the other right. thing that happened, so we started with 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 fab, fast atom bombardment, but it was it was clear that that was going to be, um, you know, just in a, a year or two was going to be disrupted by electrospray. Electrospray was was coming. Um, everybody was trying to make a source for it, you know, and not violate anybody else's patents and things like that. And um, so, uh, eventually, thermo, uh, not thermo, Finnegan had uh, the uh, they bought the um, Analytica of Branford source. Does that bring a bell to any of you guys? No. 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 <laughs> so, so Analytica of Branford was a company spun out of John Fenn's lab by Craig Whitehouse. Craig was a, a person, uh, he's a postdoc or grad student that worked in John Fenn's lab for, for years working on, on electrospray. And he spun out a company and was, was making this source and it, this it, they had a, they had the patent on deconvoluting uh spectra above like charge three or four something like that it was actually a program i think matthias mann wrote and then they filed a patent on it <clears throat> and so that that so they didn't really have strong patent protection around the actual electrospray process though the design of their their source but they had that one patent. And so if you wanted to, to, to do electrospray, you couldn't deconvolute using their method unless, uh, unless you licensed their patent. So they were using that to drive sales of the source. And Finnegan bought it 
and we're using it. And it, you know, it, it got them in the game, but it was clearly a flawed design of the source. And eventually they did uh, uh, the heated capillary uh, version, which they, they, they licensed from uh, Brian Jane at Rockefeller. And that was a much more robust design for the, for the source and worked much better. But they still had the deconvolution and all that stuff going on. Yeah, yeah, but you know, for that 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 was really targeted at people that wanted to do intact proteins. So if you didn't want, if you weren't doing intact proteins, it, you weren't deconvoluting anything. Uh, you're just doing triptych digestive peptides. You're mostly looking at two and plus two and plus three peptides anyway. So it didn't matter. It didn't matter to me. Uh, I don't think I've ever deconvoluted a, a protein in. 30 years. Oh. <clears throat> so, so it was, uh, so Lux spray came along and, uh, uh, that, that, you know, then we had to figure out how to hook up LC and do it in a robust way. And we had to figure out how to do capillary LC. Um, you know, in, in labs like, uh, Jim Jorgensen's lab and Milos Novotny's lab that were using we're doing capillary LC to try to understand more fundamentals of, of chromatography, wall effects and diffusion effects and things like that. Um, all of a sudden that's technology they'd been developing became super relevant because everybody wanted to know how to do capillary chromatography. And, uh, um, so we learned from, from those guys how to, how to make impact columns and things like that. But there was a company that, that, came along called LC Packings. They came out of the uh, Netherlands, I think. And uh, we're, we, we developed a pretty close relationship with them at Caltech. We we're buying too many of their columns because they, they wouldn't last very long back then. And um, uh, they, they were like the only game in town if you want to do capillary chromatography, you didn't want to pack your own. And so we were buying their columns we were trying to, well, we were figuring out how to pack our own. And, uh, they, uh, they were, they were great. Uh, they, they were ahead of their time in terms of trying to understand how to do uh, capillary chromatography. And I think Dianex eventually bought them. They were run by the Jean-Pierre's, Jean-Pierre Salzman and Jean-Pierre something. Unfortunately, Jean-Pierre Salzman died, but he was the guy we interacted with most because he was the, like the salesperson traveling around. And so, I mean, not to, so, so you're, so you're in Caltech at some point you get to Washington, right? I mean, that's kind of the, the next step or. Yeah. So, so here, here's again, where I don't know. I mean, you get to, you get to decision points and you start thinking about well, what if I'd made the other decision, what would have happened? So, so I'm at Caltech, things are going fine and start thinking about moving on. I mean, clearly we, we had looked at, my wife was also a scientist. And so we looked at houses in Pasadena and we couldn't believe how do anybody, how could anybody ever afford to buy a house in Southern California? And, and we were talking about at that time, it was like maybe $300,000 or something to buy a, to buy a house. You know, now that same house is probably 3 million. Um, and so, so I'm applying for jobs. One of the jobs I applied for was, was at uh, EMBL and to be uh, head of the, the protein analysis group. 
And uh, this was like 1990. And uh, I turned it down and, you know, took the job. Matthias Mann. Yeah. That's where he, that's where he got his start. And that, that put him on a, on a international platform for sure. Um, and then, uh, I, I also, then I applied to, so, so one of the reasons why I didn't go to EMBL was that they have a cap, you're there for seven years and then you have to move on. And I thought it would be really hard to come back to the United States and get a tenured position uh, without ever having written and gotten funded an NIH grant, um, which you wouldn't need if you were at EMBL because they provide all the funding for you. And uh, so I, and then I got some advice from Rudy and Rudy said, you know, it's easy for Europeans to come to the U.S. and fit in, but, you know, it's hard for Americans or outsiders to go to <laughs> Europe and, and fit in. And so I, uh, I, Decided not to go. And my wife wasn't that happy about it. You know, I'm the one that's going to have to go shopping in the grocery store and everything's going to be in German. <laughs> but, you know, Heidelberg actually has a fairly big American population from uh, uh, the military bases in, in, in the area. But then I, uh, I also applied to the University of North Carolina and got an offer to go there. It was chemistry department. And so at the same time, Lee, Lee has already has decided he's going to move to the University of Washington. Bill Gates gave him $12 million to start this new department, Department of Molecular Biotechnology. He's going to hire 12 faculty. Um, it's going to be a fun, basically a functional genomics department. And um, Lee gives me an offer uh, to go there. And so I'm trying to decide, do I go to this weird department or do I go to this, uh, go, to, go to a chemistry department? And... Uh, and decided to go to decided to go to Seattle instead of to North Carolina, and I think that decision of going to a a basically a biology department with a where I'm going to do mass spec of uh, proteins versus go to a uh, um, chemistry department where I probably wouldn't have been pressure been more pressures do more fundamental kind of mass specy things, um, you know maybe that altered my perceptions of what my direction would be going, going forward. And, and did you have, I mean, that straddling, that divide, I think we all still feel that. And you can see it, I think, in current generation. But at this point, just to ask a personal thing, like, did you have kids at this point? Like, are you also toting around a family or is this just kind of you and your wife making these decisions? No, no. We, at that point, we had uh, two kids. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, we had two kids. Um, so the first one was born pretty shortly after we got to, so like within nine months of arriving at Caltech. And so we have, we're dealing with that. And then um, we have a second one. And that one's, you know, a fairly newborn as we're moving to, moving to Seattle. So that that was a that was a trip. I, I feel yeah. like I feel like you have to add in. I'm, I I now appreciate this. I think Ben does too. Is as parents is I think you have to factor in like okay, you have a two year old at this point, and you did what? Like I feel like that's part of the story. Um, okay. Yeah. So so I mean, we had a at least when I my first one was born, we had a there was a woman in our apartment building who would look after him during the day, and 
I would go in at like five in the morning to work. And then I would, I would quit at three, something like that. Go pick up the kid. And then, um, you know, my wife would go in at, at 10 or something like that. And then she would stay till five or six. And so I would have the kid for, for a few hours, uh, on my own. And then, um, with, do all the nightly things and then I would go back to the lab in the evening. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, and what was, what I loved about Caltech is that our apartment building was a three minute walk to the building where I worked. Amazing. And, uh, so that was, I mean, it was just so good. We, we never used a car in Pasadena. We walked everywhere. The restaurants were there and, um, grocery, you could actually walk to the grocery store. Oh, wasn't that, well, that convenient if you needed to carry your, your groceries and stuff, but it's, it was walkable. And I used to go to this uh, uh, restaurant, call a restaurant, kind of a hole in the wall, called Pie and Burger, which is a fixture in, if you're at Cal, ever at Caltech, it's a fixture, Caltech fixture. And um, and I'd take my, you know, one-year-old in there when he's finally eating food and the, 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 the cook would make him Mickey Mouse pancakes and I'd hook him up to the, to the counter in this little, little seat. Maybe so I would be sitting there eating our breakfast. Usually do that on like Saturday morning when my wife is out running. And is this the one who later became you? Sorry, you mentioned one of them as a foodie. Do you think this is where this happened? <laughs> that's, that's, no, that, that's that's the middle one. So this is the one. This is the one that became a death metal guitarist. Got it. Wow. Awesome. Although he, he he had a little stint trying to trying to get a band going, but. He, he quickly gave up, but he still, he still does uh, a lot of music work. Wow. That's fantastic. <laughs> he, he makes, he makes, uh, you know, it's like, what do you want for Christmas? I want this weird instrument. Like he got a, we gave him a banjo one year and he got a recorder one year and he's, he's got an accordion one year. So he's just playing all kinds of music. And he, I think he, he said he contributed a, um, a banjo track to somebody's recording. Cool. And then I mean, naturally progressed to the highest uh, possible level of, of music, which is death metal. <laughs> ben, Ben's a big fan. Sorry, Osborne. <laughs> yeah, that, that's his jam, obviously. <laughs> um, no, no, that's, I mean, I, I know we've kind of gone, gone really, really deep in your story, but I, that, that personal element is something I think you know, you obviously can't get from reading papers and it probably doesn't come out in a lot of things. But I know for me as a, as a parent and, and probably Ben, you know, that that's a big part. Um, it, it, it factors, it changes my decisions, right? You know, the things I decide now are based on the ages of my children and probably in the future, I think my choices, I mean, did you find that also to be true? Like, so as you do this progression, you know, Washington and then scripts, I mean, I, I assume that as they age, your priorities may evolve as well, but then it's also evolving with your career, right? Or am I just leading, reading? No, no, you're, yeah. you're actually right. So, so like on, on weekends, when I was assistant professor, I was going in at 5 a.m. And then I, I worked for like four hours, five hours. And then, so by the time everybody's up and ready to go somewhere, and this is Seattle, so in the wintertime, it's raining. And so you go to the science center, you go to the children's museum, you go to some indoor activity. Um, and then they're, by that time they're ready to go. And so I go home and we all go off to the science center or something. We had, we had, uh, annual passes at, you know, like everything that was indoors and in Seattle. 
because you have to figure out, you know, people need to get out of the house. So you have to find ways to, to do that. So, so yeah, I think a lot of this, um, and, and our decision to come to San Diego kind of revolved around uh, timing, you know, just wound up being a good time to, for the kids to move. Um, having, having moved there like every two years growing up, because my father was in the military, I, 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 I'm sympathetic, empathetic to the uh, traumas of having to move like in the middle of high school and having to move in middle school and stuff like that. So um, I'm, I'm, I'm empathetic to that. And, but I, I thought when we moved to Seattle, I thought we were in Seattle for good. And then the department started to fall apart. And so Lee was going to try to, Lee Hood was going to try to start the uh, Institute for Systems Biology. And initially it was going to be within the university, which would have been great. And then they had a big falling out and he quit and to start it privately. And uh, the department basically went down to two faculty members from 12. And uh, it was, um, Lee, Lee left and he took a bunch of people with him. I, had, I, I was watching this coming this didn't look to me like it was going to end well. And so I got an offer to go to San Diego. So I took it. Um, and, you know, in the, it ended well for the University of Washington because out of that, they, they formed Genome Sciences, which has been this great, great department. But, uh, but uh, for the department Lee started, it didn't end well, like a biotechnology. Hmm. And, and so, and I, and I gotta just, we gotta say this real fast because this, you said this on Twitter and I, thought it was, uh, I didn't think it was real, but Sequest did get its name from the TV show of the mid-90s with the talking dolphin and everything. I know, I watched that show. So I, I just thought they were the same names, but I didn't know they actually, like, that was a conscious decision. Well, you know, the, the TV show was S-E-A. Right. Q. Yeah. So Sequest. Yeah. But, but yeah, so uh, Jimmy had had written the program and in the lab, it was known as Jimmy's program. And, um, Carl Klausner, which given him a copy of it or something like that. And it had no name at that point. And, uh, he said, you guys really need to come up with a name for this thing. And so I told the lab to come up with a name. And, uh, <clears throat> that was what they came up with. I, I think it's, yeah, I thought it like meant something or it was an acronym well, for something. Sense, right? Sequence quest. Yeah, yeah, no, that part worked. I, but it, because it was caps, I thought it was like an acronym for something. Um. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there was probably no thought given to copying it. Yeah. <laughs> um, it was just that program. It, it, it really, that, that show was huge for me. Like I was always like a, I thought I was going to be a marine biologist when I grew up. And so that, that show obviously resonated with me. Um, I am not a marine biologist, so. <laughs> Which is why you have a job. It, it probably, probably. <laughs> uh, and, 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 you, but you, and you do not work at Scripps Oceanographic Institute. I do not. And uh, that while they are up the street, so everything, if you've been to San Diego, you know, everything in San Diego is named Scripps. So the, the Scripps family was a, a big publishing family back in the early 1900s. And uh, they, they made the, the, the lethal mistake that um, uh, 
rich families often make is that they didn't have enough heirs. And so there's one daughter who never married, never had any heirs, who was left Ellen Browning's scripts and she wound up donating a ton of money before she died. And one of the scripts health system and the, she gave money the, to devotionography. And we're, we're called scripts because we were, we originally were connected to the scripts health system. But I am about to talk to someone in your lab about whales. And you historically have done a lot of non-humans, including marine mammals, even back before it was cool. I did? You're right. Yeah. I mean, there, there, you've had sequences, whale sequences, right? I mean, it's, it's been in previous studies. A am I missing out on my getting that one completely wrong? Some well, could, could, could be. There are early sequence alignments. <laughs> yeah. But, um, but I am about to talk to one of your students about whales. So even though you're not that? aligned, oh my gosh. Right? Oh, how many people are in your group? Yeah, that's actually a lead in. <laughs> how many people are in your group? I think about 15, 16. Oh, I just go count. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, we kind of um, normally at this point, we we go into other sections, but I feel like we we went so deep on that. Um, I, we, we, if you guys have time, we can keep going and you can edit. Oh, oh yeah, we don't edit, but I love it. You don't edit? No, yeah. absolutely not. Oh, yeah. Man, I've got time. I, I mean, we talked for the program for an hour and a half. So, yeah, I mean, if you can, can you pick the story back up? So, we were still, yeah, go back to wherever you want. Make it happen. Sure. Please. Uh, where was I? Uh, you were still, I mean, we can start back of you hadn't gone to Washington yet. So, so you had, you had consulted the jobs and there was, was this crossroads. You go to Washington. Joint biology department, Lee Hood's forming. Yeah, I, I it, you know, when I reflect back, it's like uh, I think about: Do we really appreciate how much the environment that we're in has an impact on us Absolutely. in terms of uh, what we might be doing? So, being at Caltech and being around everybody talking about um, DNA sequencing really made me question: Where was? where was protein sequencing going to, going to go? And if I'd been in the chemistry department, I may not have been asking those, those kind of questions of my, of myself. And I, you know, I, I thought that, well, maybe mass spectrometry data can be like this zip code and it'll tell us, you know, where the protein came from. And so those, these ideas that uh, eventually arrived at um, developing Sequest, but Sequest really came out of this, uh, uh, these experiments we were doing, we were sequencing MHC class two peptides at Washington. And um, one of the things that we would do is we would partially in interpret some of the sequence. And just because there's a lot of redundancy in the MHC class one peptides. Uh, so we would sequence, partially sequence it. And then you could do, you could email to the blast server and the blast server would, uh, email back what protein it came from. And so we would, we would, you know, get four or five residues off, email it to the blast server, blast server come back. And if it told us that this belonged to some protein sequence, we would stop sequencing it because it was already known. Or we would, you know, get the full sequence and, and fill it out. Um, but we all, cause we only wanted to sequence new ones. And I got the, as I'm sitting there waiting for an email to come back from the blast server, I'm thinking, 
why do I need to send, why do I need to interpret the sequence in order to do that? Why can't I just search the database with the mass spectrum? And so I, I sat down and I, I had um, a Next computer. You guys remember that? Know that? Yeah. Yeah. Ben, you must, Ben Worsborn, you must be older than Ben Neely. Right, I like am. a year. <laughs> like, come on, man. I just, I lived in East Tennessee. We didn't, we didn't have all that technology. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> well, you couldn't miss it because when, when um, Steve Jobs left Apple, he, he went off and he started uh, Pixar and he started uh, Next Computer. The Next Computer was this big thing. It was going to be, uh, you know, megapixels and a mega, one, one meg of, of RAM and one meg of storage or something like that, the three M's. And, but it was a beautiful computer. And, uh, and he used, uh, used Unix was the operating system and he laid some stuff on top of it. And, but the problem he had was that um, he couldn't get anybody the right software for it. And so there was like a, f a few programs, FrameMaker and Mathematica, and, but that's probably about it. But one of the things you could do on it was that you could, you could write code because it had a built-in C compiler. And um, so I would write my code on that, on that computer. And I could also use, there's also using Mathematica to write, write things. And uh, so I, I wrote a little program, like I input some data, some mass spec, some sequence data, sequence database data. And then I, I, input a, um, a mass spectrum, mostly typing in the mass to charge pairs into a file using that to search. And I convinced myself that I could match that up to uh, a sequence in a, in a file. And that was like, okay, we can do this. And so uh, I set about trying to hire a programmer to start working on that. And I found Jimmy. Jimmy was, uh, Jimmy caught my attention because he, had uh, he had a master's degree in electrical engineering, and his uh, master's project was using neural nets to try to do, I think, some speech recognition or something, something along that line. And I had, but while I was at Caltech, John Hopfield was there, and John Hopfield had resurrected neural nets from from uh, uh, from near death by uh, I don't know adding layers to them or something like that. But he showed that that you know, they would actually work. And so I, I got interested in that idea of neural nets, although I had no clue how to, how to do them. <coughs> and so that's one of the, one of the things that caught my attention about Jimmy and Jimmy was working in some nursing home or something like that, keeping their, their books, um, or, you know, running Excel for them or something, some, some, he was in a job that was, that was not you know, up to his skill set because he he did. I don't think he did. He didn't want to leave Seattle, and he kept applying at uh, Microsoft and Lycos. And if, I don't know if you guys have ever I mean, heard about those job interviews where they ask you these really tough questions, like if you go down a row of lockers of a hundred school lockers and you open every other one, and you go down, and you close every third one. How many would be open? And so you have to do this quick calculation in your head and try to figure things out. So they would ask you really weird questions like that. But anyway, so I hired him and we had to teach him about mass spectrometry and then we had to teach him about proteins, protein sequences and things like that. So he started working on this 
problem. And uh, first, first uh, iteration, search the spectrum. It took two and a half hours to do the search. And so uh, one spectrum. So, wow. okay. <laughs> well, it worked, found the right, right sequence, but uh, now, we're getting, now, that we do, now that we need to make it go faster. And that was on a pretty hefty computer too. That was on a, a tech workstation that somebody had given me. And uh, um, so that we, we clearly, we needed to make it go faster. And so Jimmy worked on that. Well, what was the size of the database? So this is one spectrum against a so that was a, I think the database was was the GenPep database. I don't know if that's still around. And uh, yeah, it probably had uh, maybe 100,000 sequences in it. So they, they weren't divided up by species or anything. So it was just like everything. Okay, yeah. It stuffed into one database. Right. And the, the FASTA header had some information about where it came from and what they thought it was or... Now, how, but, yeah. but, but in comparison, how long was that emailing the blast server taking? Like how long would that take to email you? It could take minutes. Okay. So, I mean, you, you had to be much faster than it wasn't like that took a day <laughs> and you were in two and a half hours. No. Okay. No, no. And, um, you know, by the time Netscape came around, you, you could actually get online and go to the blast server rather than do the email server. Mm -hmm. So th things were evolving fast back then. Yeah, but we, we clearly had to had to make it go faster and, and um you know, when all this was the I all the ideas were new to Jimmy and new to me and we we're we're you know trying to find our way through this. <clears throat> and maybe maybe uh, professional programmers would have had a better idea of what to do. But I, I was talking to them. Like Phil Green was in the department. You guys, you guys know Phil Green? Nope. Very, very famous bioinformaticist. So he, he wrote all the software that uh, um, was used to sequence the genome. Wow. We, we do. A, he, yeah. yeah, we don't do it. We're, we're not maybe the best um, background preppers. <laughs> I just want to clarify that. Our, our, <clears throat> our research department's really lame. Okay, keep going. So Phil. Yeah, yeah. So, so Phil, Phil, Phil wrote all of the, the tools, like how to read the, uh, the, the, the sequencing files off the ABI sequencer and then how to assemble sequences. And so all, all this stuff, that, how to edit sequences. So, so Phil's lab had written all that, all that stuff that, that was pretty widely used by, by people. Um, anyway, so it's Dr. Phil, ask, you know, Phil for advice on how to, how to do these things. And it's like a lot of hand waving stuff, but um, Jimmy eventually faded it out and got it, got it going faster and faster and faster. And then we, we uh, got some money and uh, um, said, well, let, we can make it go faster if we buy a computer with multiple CPUs. Um, and so we were looking at, we, we had like 50K and we were looking at um, a silicon graphics. We could probably afford a four CPU silicon graphics box. <coughs> so we're, we're looking at that you know, price versus performance sort of thing. And Jimmy starts poking around a little bit and um, says, have you ever heard of this thing called PVM, Parallel Virtual Machine? And it's uh, software developed at Oak Ridge that allows you to connect a bunch of computers together to get them to operate as a cluster. And uh, so we start looking into it 
and it turns out that we can buy uh, a bunch of deck alpha clones and the, the alphas were the 64 bit CPU processors that had just come out <clears throat> and deck was having financial problems. And so they, they uh, licensed out the technology. And so you could buy clones like half the cost of what you could buy from deck. And so we, we wound up bu buying like 12 boxes and, and they were, you know, like the, the towers, the PC towers that you would, you would have had 25 years ago. And yeah. so we had to find a space to put them and then Jimmy wired them all together and, and started writing PVM to, to do these uh, searches. And it turns out that, you know, this database searching process is a perfect uh, problem for clusters because it's the, the only, um, the, the, the only dead time is really just transferring stuff between CPUs and computers. So, you know, you'd get like a, not a, not a perfect one, but you get like a 0.98 improvement by with each additional CPU you added. So we built that. And so that was super fun uh, to, to do that. And we actually licensed that version to, uh, so we licensed all this stuff to Thermo. We actually had a patent on Sequest. And, um, and, Part of the reason for doing that is that people were, people have been telling me, people in industry have been telling me that in order to get a company to commercialize something, they had to have uh, protection on their um, investment. And so uh, I approached the technology office at, at Washington and said, here, I think this is an invention. And so... Um, they went through all the process and they said, who would, who would, who would like, who would want to license this? So they had any of these mass spec companies. And so they talked to all of them. And the only one that got it was, uh, was Finnegan. And so they said, we want, we want a license to it and we want an exclusive license to it. And so, um, nobody else seemed to, nobody else complained because nobody else seemed interested in it. So they took a, took an exclusive, which the university liked because that, Management of uh, exclusive licenses is much easier. So they they also took a license to the PVM version, and um, I was a little disappointed that they, while they licensed it, they weren't really putting much of an investment in it to to improve on it and all that stuff, which is what I thought was required. So I thought about you know we could spin out a company to do this, but I I always thought that um, you know. In order to make it work on, on mass spec platforms, the mass spectrometry companies have to allow you access to their data file formats. And so they could, they could squeeze you out. I mean, and, and I think, uh, mobile ion is having this issue. You know, they've got this device, this ion mobility device they want to put on mass specs, but it requires cooperation with the mass spec companies in order to do it. So, so that, so I thought, well, we'll license to them and they'll, they'll invest in it and they'll prove it and they'll distribute it and all this kind of stuff. I think in hindsight, I probably wouldn't have done that, but, but what, what do you think would have been the better choice? Oh, probably just, you know, do it open source, like, like what people are doing it now. I, I've heard that sentiment from some other people, uh, like in the, in this modern age is that, you know, when they've patented or put it behind closed doors, they don't have as much freedom later to kind of move it forward. Um, but I, I don't, I didn't realize it went back that far even. 
Yeah. Uh, I mean, it, it restricted what I could do yeah. and what I could give away until the patent expired. Yeah. And uh, so, um, so I mean, I was, I was kind of hamstrung and Jimmy was, was hamstrung for a while. Um, but by the same, by the same issues, cause Jimmy, Jimmy was on the patent. Uh, but that, that patent had other things in it besides just the software, like it was mixed protein mixture analysis. So if, if Thermo had wanted to, they could have owned the entire field of shotgun proteomics. And, uh, they, they just never, they never really exerted their, um, intellectual property on, on that, that they led licensed on that, on that issue. Because there, there was, uh, claims in there for doing protein mixture analysis without, uh, wow. you know, taking a protein digester on that Well, thank goodness. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it, and it's, it's hard. It's pretty hard to, to enforce something like that because you get, because I don't know if you guys are old enough, but when Roche brought, bought, said Cetus, they, to get PCR, I know they tried to exert their intellectual property rights over the uh, thermophilic um, enzyme. And because uh, because uh, a lot of academic labs were it was so expensive, a lot of academic labs were doing a lot of sequencing, were just making their own. And uh, there was such a huge backlash that Roche ran away with their tail between their legs. Yeah. Went back to suing so, DuPont. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> so, so that, that was a, that was a lesson that a lot of other companies learned about being very careful how you uh, deal with these intellectual property issues with academia. But you did have mascot also emerged at the same time I, or yeah. ish like right there. And, and I guess before that you had peptide mass fingerprinting, but, but you definitely had their tandem aspect scoring happened. Okay. Yep. And, uh, Thermo, Thermo didn't really want to go after them because they were, they were, they were afraid of, uh, of, um, irritating the field. And I, I was involved with some of the discussions and, and one of the things that, uh, mascot claimed was that they weren't using a mass spectrum to do their searches because they weren't using intensity values. Oh, because and, and the Thermo lawyer had had prior to getting that answer back it downloaded everything off their web page said but it says right here you guys are using mass intensity <laughs> <laughs> anyway yeah so, so at that point thermo had been burned by trying to sue bruker over the ion trap bruker and agilent and uh and you know they were just spending tons of money on the lawsuit and their their engineers were being tied up with, you know, talking to lawyers and, and testifying and depositions and all this stuff. And they just, this is just not worth the money. I, I don't want to read into this, but this is, this is a question I have is, I mean, is that part of the reason that matrix science, that was just a trade secret instead of a patent? Or do you think that Which, had to, um, with the, the mascot score, right? I mean, isn't, I don't, or am I wrong on that again? Um, I, my understanding was that wasn't actually patented. That was just a trade secret. Right? How they did their scoring? Yeah, isn't it the the not the mouse score, but the, the mosey or? No, I think that was that was uh, the mouse score was was simply what um, Daryl had done. Yeah. In um, the the peptide mass fingerprinting. Right. Yeah, and and you could tell. So it was all they required all this pre processing, all this stuff. And if you tried to use Mascot to do a non specific enzyme search, 
it was pretty uh, pokey because it didn't have all that pre-processed. Got it. That's so, but yeah, no, but they never, I think at that point it was probably so, so, so Daryl had done the mass figure printing stuff. So that was published in, uh, so there were five papers published in 93, I think. And then <clears throat> Sequest came out in 94 and Daryl had gotten a, Daryl had bought a thermo mass spectrometer and he got a copy of the software. And then he, he basically used that as a way to, to convert mascot into, um, a tandem mass spec searching program. And, um, then he licensed that to uh, John Cottrell. I guess it wasn't called Matt. Was it called Mascot or Cottrell? Cottrell name at that. <laughs> anyway, go on. Yeah, yeah. Daryl had a copy of Sequest in his hands when he was making that conversion, so he could compare. <laughs> so, uh, were these all commercial instruments? You said, you know, you've, you've had a relationship with Finnegan for a long time. Um, after you left UVA, is is you, you know, all your stuff being commercial? Yeah, as I as I was leaving UVA, the TSQ seventy came out, which was uh, finally a, a very sophisticated triple quad mass spectrometer, and so that's what I had at, at Caltech. But um, we'd also gotten our hands on another triple quad TSQ seventy, and. Um, Thermo was starting to develop the 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 what they were calling the BioTrap at the time, and uh, I bought an ITMS. Is remember? So there was a a um, bef before the LCQ, there was the ITMS, which was basically an ion trap, and it was basically just a a box, I think. And I'm not even sure what source it had on it. Maybe it was a electron, maybe it was an EI source, but we bought it and we cannibalized it and they helped us put that, um, they put the ion trap inside the TSQ body, which is what they were doing up in, up in um, San Jose. So that was their platform for developing the, uh, the LCQ. <coughs> and so we, we had, uh, we had a, a bio trap um, we've refused to get these two instruments. And then we were looking at, at Maldi on the Biotrap. We were looking at um, ESI in the, on the Biotrap and doing all these things. And then after we moved up to, to Washington, we started um, doing, because by then the LCQ was, uh, was, was coming out soon. Um, so we started doing even funkier things. And so this was just like my one instrument project ever. <clears throat> and we started putting, we put Swift on it. Uh, Swift was a stored waveform, inverse Fourier transform. It was a way to try to isolate ions and fragment ions. And I, I had developed the software on that on the, using Mathematica. And we could download it to a waveform generator and download it into the instrument to do these experiments. And then uh, we were doing MALDI and doing, doing ESI. And then we started putting the, taking the, the quads, put the quads back in to the instrument put the ion trap at the back. And so we had a, a Q trap instrument. <clears throat> and that was when we did our first DIA experiment. Um, 
where we just scan the trap and, and put things out of the iron trap and then fragment them in the iron trap. I think we did that with FC 43 though. <coughs> so one, one of the, one of the disadvantages to this and which, which is what drove me out of the instrument building business was the fact that, um, in order to make these things do interesting things, lots of software was involved and it was software that needed to have access to instrument control properties. And so it was, um, going to be increasingly difficult without, without, um, a direct relationship with Thermo and then allowing you access to like their code base and so forth in order to make these changes. And they're of course, very picky about that. So anyway, we, we did, we did, uh, <clears throat> a DIA experiment on that. Just a lot of, a lot of fun doing that. Now, what can you just say the year of that? Because this has come up on Twitter like 50 times, but for the listeners, what were we talking like 90, 95-ish maybe? Yeah. Okay. I was going to say 96, but I, I feel like that's, I've, we, you shared that paper um, and it wasn't called obviously GIA. It obviously wasn't called SWATH. Um, so, the so, was was a, so, so it was a, a 2004 paper, which was probably more appropriate for, for DIA. Mm -hmm. We show that there's a, um, a, a big, by using MS2, there's a big improvement in quantitation. So this paper was uh, by so that 2004 paper was Venable at L. This paper was John Scher, and Karen was a was a grad student uh, working in my lab, <coughs> and she was a applied physics undergrad, and so she was um, building building all these instruments and stuff. So her her story was was really pretty amazing. She had uh, three and three quarters kids while she was a grad student, so she would like get pregnant, work like crazy, write a paper, have a baby, and then uh, come back, work for a little while, get pregnant again, work like crazy, write a paper, have a baby, <laughs> that three times. Oh my gosh. And then she was just defending, she was like uh, eight months pregnant. Wow. So, so still incredibly productive despite that yeah I, you know i think to some to some extent it was because she had a uh she had this deadline Ooh. right <laughs> so just get get these things done <laughs> and, and i feel like too i mean be yeah like you said like being forced to to have a deadline and then just be able to manage i think i think like as a person now like i think you're forced to manage more than yourself and probably conveys additional skills into the lab right I mean, you got to, you got to juggle everything. Like what's, what's the mass spec if you've got two kids, like they can do anything. <laughs> um, but that's incredible. Okay. I, I didn't know that story at all. Yeah, that was such a, that was a, a, a fun instrument. <clears throat> and then the LCQ came out and we lost interest. And I mean, it, and since, I mean, in your opinion, and, you know, we talk a lot about how the relationship with instrument manufacturers and their choices uh, in parallel to certain, to the researchers choices is, is affecting the growth of the field. And so, I mean, if you had this generic open source platform, I mean, how, how different do you think we could develop Right. I mean, do, do you think that could have been or could be an answer? 
like in some weird perfect world, if there was. Yeah. So, so, so if you go back to the TSQ 70, one of the, the things about the TSQ 70 that was unique is that they had um, instrument control language on it. And so it, it was a, it was this Unix box. And they had this software called ISIS and, and ISIS had, you could put up all these windows and you could move things around these windows and each of the windows you would do something, you could do something different. Like you could have a, a tune window up and you could have a, um, um, a control window up and you could have a programming window up and all other than the uh, HPLC operating window. So, so you could have all these different things up there. And so these were controls that they, they, there was a, um, a crude language where you could control the operation of, you could write programs to control the operation of the mass spectrometer. This is where DDA started because people, not, not Thermo, um, not, not Finnegan, um, but people in labs were writing programs to automatically collect scan the mass spectrum. And so the other way you would do it is that you might set up um, like four windows in, in ISIS, or even maybe even more because you could add more windows and, and like say, okay, pick out mass a thousand. Okay, now pick up mass eleven hundred. So, so and then you would just keep typing them, typing the stuff in, and that's how people were were trying to during an LC run. We're trying to collect candid mass spectra back then, and then I think Terry Lee's lab was probably the first one to do it. They just wrote an algorithm that would just see an ion, collect it, <coughs> and that that was that was huge that was a huge innovation because you could, could run and and we were collecting one spectrum every three to four seconds so you'd have to sit there and accumulate get enough signal um and then people people were starting to figure out uh formulas for how to predict the, the collision offset energy so the frag for the fragmentation so there's some there formulas that started coming up for um uh this this the size of the peptide and then um you know how much collision energy to, to put into it and stuff like that. So it was, it, so it, it allowed, and then people started doing doing innovative things. Like they would say, "Okay, I want to find on this one protein. I want to find what 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 um, peptide is phosphorylated." And so they would put in all these exclusion masses. So don't collect MSMS on all these things. Only collect MSMS on things which are different. And so it'll allow, it'll really allow people to innovate. And, um, that, that, so a lot of the stuff that we do now really came out of that period of when we were, people were, were allowed to innovate on the mass spectrometers and do these, do these different things. Now you can still go to, to like Thermo or, or possibly Bruker and say, I want to do this or I want to do that. And they'll, they'll make an assessment, but you're kind of at their mercy whether they have the, the time and resources to, to actually implement it. And if you're somebody like Josh Kuhn or Steve Gigi, you know, they'll certainly take it more seriously. Um, but I've been told that there are reasons why they don't want to do this. They want to make it open, open access. <coughs> One is um, they're afraid that <coughs> somebody might in invent something really um, useful and then patent it. And then all of a sudden thermos got out pay to use this thing on their mass spectrometer. Uh, and then two, um, they're afraid that people screw up their mass spectrometers and they've got to, they'll, then they'll have to fix it. And I guess increasingly you, you can, I don't know if you can actually physically damage your mass spec, but you can certainly screw it up enough by toying with the software that, um, 
it might not work anymore. But that's what factory resets are for, I think. Sure. Yeah. Well, Same like convenient excuses, right? <laughs> but yeah, I think I think in, in part they just they they don't want to they still want to deal with it. Oh yeah, no, it's got to be a hard thing to support. <laughs> wow. I, I think it would make a I think it would make a huge difference, and it would really really tap into the creativity of the community. <clears throat> yeah, I mean that that's kind of where I was. I mean, I see all these. I mean, even I mean maybe that's not the right example, but you know, real time search. But we know people want to do things. I mean, we see all the creativity in programming. And if you just translated that to the instrument, I, I, yeah, I think people, people's minds do things, right? And it'd be super fun. I mean, real, real time search, we were thinking about that as soon as we got Sequest running. We started thinking about, well, can we do this on the fly? Yeah. You know, what would it require to do this on the fly? And then, then we started thinking about, well, why would we want to do this on the fly? I could never come up with a good reason. <laughs> And, uh, you know, people have, have toyed with this over the years. Uh, um, one of my former postdocs, Ashok Don Gray, um, is at Bristol Myers Squibbs. They, they had, they had it running for a while. Um, and they would, uh, search, uh, like they do a gel band and they would search. And if there was something they already knew or something they weren't interested in, they would shut down the, the run so they could save a little bit of time, but you know, not a huge, not, not, nothing really super innovative there. Yeah. I'm still at a point where I'm not sure why I would use it either, right? <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> um, wait, aren't we doing data dependence so we can find novel things, right? <laughs> and, and yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm, I mean, then there have been a number of papers published over the years where people have done it, done real time. And <clears throat> I mean, the applications just haven't been all that compelling. Yeah, but, but, but I mean, even within your current lab, you know, with the, the pacer box, what do, what do I call it? I don't call it the pacer box, but I mean, you know, those concepts, obviously you were part of that. Um, and, and I mean, do you see that, uh, progressing more? I mean, like what, what would you say is your exciting next step, right? And, and how we can make the instrument behave. Yeah, so so we are working on 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 some of those. Yeah. Um, they don't necessarily revolve around real time search, but they do evolve around real time interactions with the mass spectrometer. Right. And um, having the ability to you know go back and forth and then to control the control the operation of the mass spectrometer is something that would be really important. And and so we're we are trying to to do things like that. So, I mean, for example. Uh, to, to Ben Orsborn's question of uh, finding new things. So suppose you do a run and then you want to do another run, but you don't want to re, re-interrogate everything you've just analyzed. And so do this, uh, we call it the uh, 2D gel experiment, right? The wild type and then the mutant and say, okay, I want to look at the, the spots that are different. So do, do that kind of experiment. Makes sense. Cool. The 2D gel experiment's been around forever. Yeah. Well, we didn't even talk about like how gels were progressing alongside and, and even those <laughs> those ideas. Um, well, I, well, this weird thing that you had something to do with. I know it's it's it, it's hard to uh, touch base on on the the technologies that seem to have come out of your group, right? Um, um, Mudpit was the 
was was such a next level thing for me as you know especially you know, that's when that came out i was like oh wait we can really do proteomics right um well what wasn't um, it, I, I guess a, it, it was a, an idea certainly at the time um, yeah so dennis you know dennis hockstrasse you guys, you guys oh, know I, all the no. old school uh, proteomics people? I do know so that. Dennis, Dennis was, um, he was uh, University of Geneva and <clears throat> big big 2D gel guy. He'd started the Siena conferences. And um, uh, Dennis used to invite me to these electrophoresis meetings. And I'd be like the lone person there um, <clears throat> talking about not using gels. And he said he would invite me as a, as a warning to people in the field that this is what's coming. So you better get your, uh, you know, up your games because, uh, you, you're going to get disrupted if you don't improve your ability to do things. And that 2D gels were, I mean, they were like an awesome technology that just never lived up to its potential because they were hard to do that reproducibility wasn't all that great. Um, and then it turned out that what looked like 10,000 spots was really more like a thousand spots. Um, <clears throat> and, and the spots weren't individual proteins. And so there was all these, all these issues that really, really didn't come to the forefront until you had the technology to, to look at each and every spot. But the, the, the 1990s were just awesome because the genome, the genome project combined with this new ability to identify things just exploded interest in, in protein analysis. 2D gels thought their day had come. And so, you know, lots of, lots of interest in this. And so there were lots of meetings where people wanted to find out what is this proteomic stuff that's going on. <coughs> you know, even before the genome project got finished and proteomics became the next buzzword. But um, so, so lots of, lots of really exciting um, meetings going on and discussions and how are we going to do this and how are we going to do that? Do you think, I mean, to, I know we're getting back now we're like in the future, but I mean, do you feel that right now? Because to me, it feels that might be happening, right? Like, uh, as in proteomics is moving outside of our little box, right? And I'm, I guess not to say it, it wasn't outside, but it feels, do, do you feel that in, in your world or is that just my perception? So, so proteomics is much more widely used than you might realize. Because if you look at the back, anything that involves proteins, if you look, look, not the proteomics part and mass spec part is not usually at the, at the forefront of a story anymore. And so it's usually what biology was uh, discovered. And so the mass spectrometry proteomics part <clears throat> is usually buried pretty deeply in the, in the story. But it's, it's hard to say that anybody has, has, that has done a, a protein study, a, a story that revolves around proteins, that, that mass spec has not been used. It's hard, hard to find that. And if, they, if mass spec hasn't been used, they've probably done Western blocks, and so it's probably wrong anyway, um, or, or fake. <laughs> um, so, so I think mass spec has had a, and, and, and proteomics has had a huge, huge impact, but I think a lot of it is, is kind of like, it's like the, the iceberg, you know, 
it's, it's under the, the large part is under the water. And, and the, 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 the area where there is the most intense interest is blood proteomics. And that's the place where we are at our worst. <coughs> and so, and that, that's been something that people have wanted to do for, for 25 years. And we've just struggled at it because of the way the technology works. And so that's given opportunity for the O-Links and the Sears and the Nautiluses and the uh, Somalogics to, to, to come up. And that, that's the place where they're going to they're gonna hurt us is blood proteomics. And that's the place I love. <laughs> um, but, it, but it is such a good point. I mean, yeah, if you go back to, what was it, the, the Andersons, right? They, you know, they were kind of doing the blood back in the day. 2D gels, it's like 60 yep. proteins. Uh, we just kind of implied along. But, but it still, it feels like there's renewed excitement um, of, of appreciating the protein. Uh, and maybe this is just because we did the whole genome and we're like, okay, now what? I, I just, and, and again, maybe this is my view, but I just, I feel like people are more open to talking about proteins, whether or not it's mass spec based or not, but they're, they know the proteins are where it's at. I mean, they, right? I mean, we're, yeah. We, well, well clear, clearly genomics has not, has not told us everything. And, and I've been around <clears throat> long enough that, you know, the story started out, well, we'll sequence one genome, we'll know everything, right? So, oh, well, you know, maybe we need to do a few more. And then, and then we got to do a, do a thousand, a thousand genome project. No, now we can need to do a million genomes. Now we need to sequence everybody. And so the, the, the rate, the, the number of things you need to sequence in order to understand this keeps getting bigger and bigger. And, and may, maybe all the answers are not contained within the genome. And you really have to understand the other molecules that are involved in biological processes like proteins and metabolites and things like that in order to put the story together. But, but yeah, yeah. I, I, I think protein, I was at a, some investor conference uh, a couple of years ago and, and they had somebody from one of the um, investment firms and put up this number for, this is the value, what the value we see of genomics. And said, this is the value we see of, of proteomics coming, going forward. And the number was like three times the size of the genomics number. Mm. So, so it, people that are investing think that there is a, a lot of value to be gained from from proteomics, depending on how they define proteomics. Well, and and still, I mean, back to blood. I mean, if I just personally look at blood in the last five years, you know, I think we're better at get, going deeper, faster. Right? There's been huge gains, huge gains, and and a lot of it's instrument plus DIA plus, or well, actually DDA or DIA. But it see it seems like we're pushing that boundary. Um, into applicability. And then, you know, if we think about these like micro sampling, I mean, it does, it does seem like I, th I think it's about to happen or it probably has happened and it's, and it's going to hit mainstream. Um, yeah, I guess we'll see. So, so the, the signal will be, so Mike Snyder always talks about this, that there are all these big projects like all of me and motor pack and things like that. And, and <clears throat> the mass spec proteomics that we do is usually not, it's usually not involved in those projects because they do not think we have the throughput mm. to do the, the number of samples that they want to do. And metabolomics is in there. And, you know, the only metabolomics can't do the kind of numbers that, that we can do with any certain, with any level of certainty, um, but they're fast. 
you know, slack it up on a GCMS and you can run, you know, a thousand, thousand patients in a day, something, something like that. And uh, so that, that's what they want for a lot of these big, massive projects that NIH has been putting together recently. They want, they want throughput. <clears throat> so, so, so that's, that's the signal. That's the marker. Like we, yeah, if we so, get okay. apt for Biobank UK or something like that, then boom, like we're on the scene. Yeah. So when, when proteomics starts getting, getting, um, used in those kind of projects, that's the, that's the sign we've arrived. And, and I mean, if you, Jen, Jenny's on the advisory board for the UK biobank and it's, she says it's very hard to get samples out of there and that, you know, you've got to have um, some very carefully designed studies. So there is a study going on now where they're comparing like O-Link and Somalogic and all these things for some set number of, of samples. And I think they finally got diagnosis involved in it as well. It's being funded by pharma. Mm -hmm. And they want to um, um, kind of establish, you know, what methods actually work and what, how do they compare and stuff like that. Right. Wow. And we sure use that. And, and so, John, if you don't mind, like going way back a long time ago, when I asked the first question, you know, for you thinking about the future, I mean, do you, you know, I think you see a future and I think you are actively like working to make that future a reality. Do you see, you know, I mean, is part of the future that you see that you're pushing towards and towards the end? Um, is it kind of this adoption of proteomics? I mean, it's got to be, right? Or, or am I missing misinterpreting? Well, I think I think it's I think it's adopted. Yeah, but but adopted um, at that scale, right? That's you said that's the mark, right? Well, yeah, I think the I mean, for everything but blood, proteomics is is incredibly effective, and you know maybe, maybe CSF we're a little just still pushing the limits a little bit. But uh, I think for for, uh, for for most every every other kind of study you want to do, proteomics works really well. I mean, um, they're people are getting you know these five minute runs and they're getting five six thousand proteins. That's pretty impressive. And if you you know, um, go a little bit longer, you're getting you know getting seven eight nine thousand proteins identified. That's pretty impressive uh, that that people can do that now. And <clears throat> so that allows you to tackle a lot of problems that are not blood. Or not CSF, or not not urine, um, to to really understand biology and biological mechanisms, and and we just keep getting better and better. And I've always thought that the the sort of transition would be, you know, being a, be able to identify everything in a cell, all the proteins in a cell, and then you know pick up sequence coverage so that you can identify modifications and things like that. So, you know, the, the first step you could do one or two peptides per protein. Second step, you're going to need most of the protein sequences to get covered. And then the third step would be to get top down to actually work. Um, hey. <clears throat> so now you're looking at proteoforms and all these, all these variations and so forth. And we're, we're certainly, we're certainly almost done with number one and number two will start to improve. Uh, over time, as we start thinking about, okay, how do, how do we in increase? I mean, Josh Kuhn just had that big study in, in Nature Biotechnology. He told me it took him like eight years to get that done, where he used a collection of different proteases and then lots of fractionation and runs to to get high sequence coverage across uh, the proteomes of these different different cell types. 
And um, so he, he averaged about 80% sequence coverage. And so he could get isoforms and modified forms and things like that out of, out of it. But it was all still you know, bottom up. So, so that, those were sort of the things. So the things I'm looking forward to are, um, so single cell finally has arrived or arriving. Um, the 3D proteome I'm enamored with, um, looking at the shape of proteins, but trying to do so in vivo rather than ex vivo. <clears throat> and uh, so what's, what would be the third thing? Um, the, the the third thing was kind of has been kind of a, a more of a personal goal of trying to go from proteomic data to a potential drug, and so we've been doing that with cystic fibrosis, where we've uh, some some of the studies we found a bunch of drug targets, <clears throat> dental drug targets, and now we're trying to trying to validate one as a as a drug target and and try to make some at least lead, lead compounds for it. So go from, you know, collect proteomic data to get a lead compound. No, absolutely. No, it's a great perspective. And <coughs> I, I don't know how we could end it better than this, to be honest. Right? <laughs> um, except, um, I guess, thank you, John. Yeah, sure. Thank you so much. <laughs> yes. This was so much fun. I, and I, I truly mean this. Oh, sometimes I lie to people. <laughs> <laughs> but so here's here's a, here's a variation on the Ben and Ben show is uh, start doing it at, um, at, a, at a conference and then every 15 minutes take a shot <laughs> and and then see how uh, see how the conversations deteriorate. Yeah. <laughs> we we've done that in real life and, and we know what's going to happen. So. <laughs> oh, okay. I think timing's good because I think I'm losing my voice. Well, hey, yeah, right about that. But seriously, thank thank you for coming um, for being on the show. So this is yeah, this was fun. So some quick uh, credits since we are at the end. So first off, the views expressed are solely ours, not our employers or US Hupo. Uh, we want to thank US Hupo because they're still sponsoring us. Uh, we would like to thank Johannes for the uh, lead in and exit song, Kaylee Kirkwood for our artwork. If you want to, on whatever platform you, you are listening, you can like, subscribe, put stars, reviews. Uh, I don't know, whatever else you do. But again, thank you for listening, and there will be more. So thanks. <laughs>